Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to share our common humanity by sharing stories about the bicycle. Some people do it with cooking, some people do it with geography. I like to do it with bicycle stories from around the world. This is a big tent show. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or a novice. It doesn't matter if you ride, race, or wrench. If you ever connected with a bicycle, you'll probably get it. On today's episode, we go to Australia to see why the grass isn't always greener on the other side, even when you really want it to be warmer out. I get surprised by a style of bike that's popular in Europe, and we go up to one of the American meccas of cycling, Portland, Oregon, to talk about bike theft. You have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. So winters are tough for me, like the daylight gets shorter and shorter and shorter, it gets colder, and I really like to ride my bike outside, so I've geared up with winter cycling stuff and a fat bike, but I'm not going to lie, there are times when I want to just hop on a plane, quit my job, and go live in Australia for the winter months. Being on the opposite side of the world, Australia is heading into their summer as we're heading into our winter. So I know the grass is always greener on the other side, but on one side, there's magpies. If you don't live in Australia, that probably doesn't make any sense. But if you do live in Australia, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And after you listen to this story, everyone else will know too. So I was talking to Sean, a guy from the last show. I just messaged him back and forth and I said, you know, I hate winter, you know, it's so cold. We get snow up here where I am and it's just ice and and yucky. It's like, I'm a little jealous that you guys are heading in spring. And he goes, well, don't forget about the magpies. And I'm like, what? Just, just YouTube it. And I YouTubed it and your video was the first one to show up. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, oh my God. Yeah, that Bree is, is like it's like notorious magpie season at the moment, actually. So. so my name is Amber Wheatland. I live in Australia, and I accidentally went viral on my bike with a magpie. So magpies are a native Australian bird and in the springtime they get very, very territorial while they're building their nests and while they have young babies in their nests and they actually swoop you and swoop to people that are walking, uh, riding their bikes, just anywhere near the nests and they're quite infamous here in Australia. We know that every spring it's magpie swooping season. So I, at the time, had a breakfast radio show and it was swooping season and we thought we'd put it to the test uh, ways that you could deter a magpie because we, we often see people um, putting zip ties in their helmet just to create a bit of distance from contact. We also see people drawing eyes on their helmets because apparently eye contact 
makes magpies nervous so that when you're looking at them, apparently they don't swoop you. So at the time I had a breakfast radio show and we uh, decided to put it to the test. We got our listeners to call us with some suggestions on ways to avoid magpies while you're just out riding your bike or walking and even the postie that delivers mail and parcels and stuff, they're notoriously get swooped by magpies. So the listeners gave me some suggestions which were sticking branches in my helmet, uh, drawing eyes on my helmet and then of course the zip ties. So I went out with my GoPro on my mountain bike and I tested a few of the theories and we put the video up on our Facebook page uh, the next day and it went viral. Five years later, it's, it's had almost 12 million views around the world on, on Facebook and YouTube and other social media platforms. So every, every spring, without a doubt, this video of mine pops up and I, I can't escape it. Now, don't think for a minute that Amber is just getting too close to their nests. These birds move into your neighborhood and set up shop wherever they want, and they basically take over. So if you're the postman, for those many months out of the year, you've got to avoid the magpies. If you're a little kid walking to school every day, you've got to avoid the magpies. And if you're a cyclist looking to get some exercise, yep, need to avoid those magpies. So she actually set up quite a good experiment. From my perspective as a science teacher, I told her I used it in my classes to talk about how to set up an experiment. In the first trial, she put sticks in her helmet, and here's how it goes. You're going to need to part in the wind in the background. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So she's riding in the bike portion of the road. She's got some sticks stuck in her helmet, kind of like antlers, and no birds swoop at her. For the next trial, she changes up the independent variable by drawing eyeballs on the back of her helmet and then taking out the sticks. See the eyes? The eyeballs, like a stare down, are supposed to intimidate the birds from swooping. Fierce magpie um, behind the Nurbane P10 school. From all reports, it's not very nice. So um, hopefully the eyes are going to work. I do have a helmet on, so it shouldn't hurt too much. Um, And that's why the video went viral. It's pretty cute. There's a bird and he's just swooping at her and she's freaking out. Now she's got a helmet on. As far as I know, the bird didn't really get her or anything or hurt her. But this phrase, the eyes don't work, became pretty famous around the world.
it's amazing. And it's amazing that we don't know about that. You know, the, the whole idea of my show is, is to try and bring people together from around the world to share stories. And in at least where I live, there's nothing even close to this. Uh, mm. Probably the closest thing would be squirrels, which run in your path. And they don't, they're not being aggressive. They just want you to get nervous and crash. And uh, Sean <laughs> says that, you know, you have these large kangaroos, which basically are like giant Australian style squirrels who will do the same thing. The question this leads to is, is everything in Australia trying to kill you? <laughs> there is, we do have a lot of dangerous animals here in Australia. Um, I, I'd say the, the most famous one um, would probably be a magpie, along with all of the snakes and things like that. But you don't see those deadly snakes. And I know that people in other countries, like, everything in Australia wants to kill you and, you know, don't go there, there's spiders and snakes and sharks and all these hectic animals. But... Truth be told, you don't really see them that often. The things that you do see are kangaroos on the side of the road when you're on a highway going 110 k's an hour and magpies when you're walking in the park. And even year after year, it's fascinating to me because a lot of people from overseas don't know what a magpie is. So when they're seeing this crazy woman on a push bike getting swooped by this bird, I imagine people from other countries are like, what on earth is going on? But here in Australia, it is so normal. Like, we all know about magpies, and we all know that if you're walking on a spring morning with the dog or... And the thing about magpies is they, they hang around schools and parks and, like, really public areas. So it's almost like they enjoy the, uh, the chase. <laughs> so we have a bird who's probably the closest thing to this and all they do is fly around and kind of like sing at you. They never really get close enough to peck you in the head. And that's our red-winged blackbirds. And they're probably, I would guess they're about half the size of the magpie. And they just kind of want to get you away from their mate who's somewhere nearby. And it seems like these magpies are much more territorial. Like you don't even have to be right next to their nest. You could just be anywhere in the vicinity at all and they just decide that they're going to go after you yeah absolutely and they they just go and go and go as well actually when i was filming the video so i just had to go i was very unprepared for the video it was a very spur of the moment idea that i would even film this video and put the suggestions from my listeners to the test so i've just gone out my dad had a spare mountain bike i blew off some dust off that we come from a big uh, my brother and i used to race bmx and things like that so I actually had the GoPro in one hand and I was riding along just with one hand on the push bike and I didn't have like a something to attach the GoPro to the handlebars or anything like that. And after the first swoop, I panicked and I actually pressed the off button on the GoPro. <laughs> so I had to, I got to the end after I'd just been swooped for a few minutes and I was like, oh my God. And then I look and I realize that the GoPro's turned off. So I had to turn it back on turn around and get switched by magpie for the second time and it was no less scary the second time it was equally as terrifying as the first time when i told my dad the plans to film this particular video he was like what if you fall off what if you have a crash because i was riding at the back of my old high school and there's a big bend sort of thing and he's like oh what if you fall off so my dad was actually tailing me in his car supervising this magpie swooping video 
and you can actually see in one frame of the video my dad's black car in the background and that's his claim to fame. He's very proud of that, that he's on this viral video. And then, of course, in the video I'm screaming, get mum, get mum, get mum. So that is then also my mum's claim to fame as well, that she's in a viral video as well. There's all kinds of great things about cycling in Australia as well. How long does the magpie season last? So about three months for magpie swooping season. It's just in spring while they've got young babies in the nest. And it tends to be the same family of magpies that return to the same nest every year. So in your local area, if you get swooped by a magpie, you then know moving forward from then, from now until the end of time, that's the spot where you're going to get swooped by a magpie. It's a reoccurring <laughs> spot for the same family of magpies. So people and nature living together in perfect harmony. That's great. <laughs> Is there anything else that people have tried since? Has there been any things that you've wanted to, like, do people say, you know what you should have tried? You should have tried, you know, after a million people Monday morning quarterbacking and looking back on it and saying, you know, try this or try that. Is there any other weird suggestions that people gave you besides those three? There's, there's been a few suggestions for me to, to remake the video, potentially with different kinds of terrifying birds here in Australia. There's these birds called ibis. Uh, they're also known as bin chickens here in Australia. And um, they, yeah, they want me to do videos with those or, you know, a wedgetail eagle and things like that, and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm hanging up the <laughs> hanging up the helmet. I'm done with the uh, the magpie and bird videos. <laughs> and that's the thing with viral videos, like you never know. Like when I filmed it, and um, my co-host at the time, he did the editing on it, and we never expected it to. It was it was essentially just for our listeners in my local area who I do the radio show for. And the morning we put it up, it by the end of our radio show. It already had like 2,000 views and heaps of comments and my co-host and I were like, oh my God, what is happening? And then, yeah, by the end of that day, it was like like 10,000 like, of people have viewed it and I was like, oh my God. So we never intended for it to be a viral video. It just happened to be that. <laughs> and now, yeah, yeah, five years later, I still get every season, every swooping season, the old video comes out <laughs> and people tag me in it and I have to take a little social media spell and... Have a break. <laughs> wow. So I really appreciate it. You're like, you're an ambassador for the magpies to the rest of the world. Yes, so, um, magpie girl forever. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm sorry if that, if that wears a bit after a while, but I really appreciate it. No, it's fine. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay. Thank you. So obviously it wouldn't be right to do just a one-sided interview. And here on the Bike Karma podcast... We have the technology to be able to talk to animals. So, for the first time, the magpie side of the story. Let me just turn on the animal translator. And here we go. Mr. Magpie, I'm assuming. Good day. Thank you very much for being with us today. And go ahead, tell your side of the story. Thanks, Dom, for finally giving me the opportunity to talk. I just want to thank Amber for her huge reaction to my swooping. My brood was well impressed you helped make me look quite fierce and for a songbird that is quite a trick and no lie. I mean, that first time with the sticks I was like no way what is that but then the second time the eyes weren't that realistic to be fair. 
I mean, of course, we are scared of eyes normally, but you just needed to give them a little more of a stare, you know. Anyway, I am now a legend locally with the other magpies, so thanks for that, Amber. So like they say at the end of so many episodes where there's animals involved, no people or animals were harmed in that story. But in between the time that story got recorded and now, Australia suffered some major fires, and that has severely affected people and wildlife. So as we wrap up this particular segment, if you feel so moved, please give to one of the different charities trying to assist the people and wildlife in Australia. And let's hope them all a speedy recovery. Hi there, everyone. Fred Thomas here, president of Rideable Inc. And the face, voice, and legs behind Frame and Wheel and AD Bikes. Now, if you were road racing or doing triathlons in the late 90s or early 2000s, you'd recognize an Aegis bike if you saw one. They were made out of this revolutionary new material called carbon fiber. They were light, and they had colorful and distinctive custom finishes. Aegis was a sensation, a disruptor, and well ahead of its time. Now, last year, my company obtained the abandoned Aegis trademark and set up a division called Aegis Bikes. We reintroduced the brand to the market with the launch of the Victory Carbon, a road racing frame. You may have spotted the modern Victory at some rides or races around New England or on social media and wondered if it was the same Aegis. It's very much the same brand, but with a clean slate and perfectly poised to be reimagined for any segment of the cycling market. We are now looking for a partner to buy some or all of the Aegis Bikes division and bring the restoration of the brand to the next level. Aegis Bikes has an eBay store, a website, and an Instagram page already up and running. There are three Victory Carbon frame sets in the market, and the brand has 15 years of market recognition and a dedicated national following. Please visit the Aegis Bikes Instagram page to learn more about this exciting opportunity or reach out to me directly on social media. Thanks so much. So there's this thing called a step-through frame. It's basically where the top tube slopes downwards, and it meets the seat tube way lower than a typical standard frame. Now this is a great design, but they have some baggage. Even though this type of frame design could be ridden by anybody, historically, this style of frame was heavily marketed as a ladies frame because of the stereotype that women were going to wear dresses and skirts and that it'd be a lot easier to ride with a big dress on if you had a lower slanting top tube. This of course was mostly pushed and made up by a bunch of guys. The frame could have easily been marketed towards people who want ease getting on and off the bike. It could have been marketed to people with injuries. It could have been marketed to people who just like the low flowing angles. But no, the politics of sex and the evil machinations of business have forever linked this frame design to stereotypes of sexuality. So much so that many even very open-minded men would be a little bit self-conscious riding what's considered by so many to be a lady's bike. 
even today, some dads might hesitate to put their son onto his sister's bike because a dad might be worried what his friends would think. And yet, if we relook at the design, there's nothing inherently feminine or masculine about either type of frame. Some companies really push this so that instead of trading and having siblings share bikes, that parents would need to go in and get an actual sex-specific bike for the other child rather than their brother or sister's hand-me-down. This and using stereotyped colors was a way of selling more bikes to a family. Other companies, in a rare circumstance of the free market actually working, painted their bikes in gender-neutral colors and included removable top tubes so that children of any gender on their spectrum could ride the bike and pass it on to somebody else. It gets worse though. In the vintage bike market, if you have what's considered a ladies bike and a men's bike of the same model, guess which one usually sells for more? Yup, the men's bike. So we live in a world where female executives get paid much less than their male counterparts doing the same work, and the same bike is worth a lot less just because the tube slams down a little bit. In the United States, unless you're in one of the many hubs of bicycle culture and open-mindedness, step-through frames are undervalued, underloved, and underutilized. It's even common practice among some bicycle flippers to totally cannibalize a perfectly good step-through frame of a certain model to provide parts for a male frame. Even if it's the same size frame, the residual historic sexual discrimination against that style of bike might even get it thrown into the scrap heap. Having a step-through frame on city bikes and rental bikes and bike shares has helped a little bit in the US, but it wasn't until I recently visited France that I saw how our relationship with the step-through frame could be. When I stepped out of the United States and went to Paris for Christmas this year, I was excited to see that all around Paris, people of every sexual orientation were embracing the step-through frame as a practical mode of transportation. The same type of bike I might have trouble selling in the United States was the predominant bike everywhere I looked. So many step-through frames of every vintage being loved and ridden and utilized and enjoyed. It made me start to think about some of my step-through frames sitting in the maybe someday pile. My own collection of unwanted orphans. This is how they should be, out and being ridden and loved. Now don't get me wrong, there were mountain bikes, there were road bikes, but the predominant winner of the bike survey informally done by me was the step-through frame with an upright handlebar setup and plenty of space for cargo, racks, and bags. Paris is just one of the many points in Europe that use this style of bicycle for transportation. Doesn't matter if you call it a Dutch bike or a Paris bike, in a practical sense, it wins. I stopped by a bike shop in Paris to ask them more about cycling in their city. Yeah, my name is Gaspar. Bonjour. Bonjour. Tell me about bicycling in Paris. Cycling in Paris since a few years have been more and more complicated because of the bike lanes which aren't made the best way they should and with so many cars and all the strikes that we had the, the, few, the few months we can feel a lot of tension on the roads in Paris. 
how is Paris in general as a cycling city? It's becoming slowly more cycling friendly, but we are not really developed in cycling in Paris compared to other European countries. I noticed that all of the bikes have a very similar utilitarian on the top for men and women, and it just seems like a very functional bike. Could you describe that design and why it's so popular here? Yeah, it's our specialty. We've, we've been here 25 years. We sell mostly city bikes, and those are men and women bikes with like really high position. You sit really straight on the bike, and with all the traffic in Paris, it's quite important to be to be straight to be able to look behind you and to have a stable, long, and low bike. We're specialists in like city bike, Dutch bikes, German bikes. I noticed you have Rallys and Gazelles. What are some of the other brands? Our main bikes, uh, new bikes, is our brand. It's Bicyclone. That's bikes that are handmade in Germany for us. They're high-end utility city bikes, really functional with uh, all the equipment you can wish to have on a city bike. Thanks for talking to me. If people want to find out more about your shop, where would they go? Yeah, it's a pleasure. They can go on our website, which is called Bicyclon, and uh, come and visit us in Paris. The address is 98 Avenue de Versailles in the 16th department. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for being so uh, generous. And I, I wish I could speak French uh, as well as you speak English. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. Au revoir. Thank you, France, for liberating the step-through frame in my mind. In fact, my favorite bicycle in the whole trip, bike spotting, hashtag bike spotting. That's where you weirdly look at other people's locked up bikes because you think they look cool and you try to look at it really closely without looking like you're stealing it. Yeah, my wife loves when I do that. Well, my favorite bike of that trip was a step-through frame and it was like a 1950s or 60s Moto Comfort. It was silver with chrome and red accents and this beautiful two-bar sloping tube, an amazing vintage ride. And even though I'm from the U.S. and this bike has a step-through frame, I would proudly ride it anywhere. It was a beautiful bike. En beau vélo. Holy cow, there's a lot of podcasts out there to listen to, like exponentially more every single year. So however you found your way to the show, I really appreciate coming here and especially like when people follow, hit the like button or share. So to our mid-roll thank yous, I'd like to thank, oh my god, these names are so easy this time, Derry and Terry. That is so refreshing to not have to guess at the pronunciation that I'm somewhat suspicious, but I'm going to go with it. So thanks, Darian Terry. And Af, Mickey, Puzo, Mr. Sunny, Tig, Vermont, Martin, Marty, Buddy, and Vumpf85. Thanks a lot for following on Podbean. Believe it or not, Apple Media is still a huge player in the game, so anytime you leave a rating or review there, it really helps the show. So a big thank you to Shifted Up Cycles for leaving us a nice review, and to Rich Shannon for also leaving us a nice review, and everybody who's left nice ratings. 
Thanks a lot to the Alaska Bicycle Center for mentioning us and their story on Instagram. Thanks a lot to Smoky Creepin 9 on Instagram for becoming part of the Bike Karma Sticker Army. All you have to do is message me on any of the social media platforms or email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy, all one word, at gmail.com if you want some stickers to spread around to help support the show. Another big thanks to Nick Raystrick from the UK who sent me a preview copy of his book, The Bicycle Clip Diaries, which I am enjoying very much. And a huge, huge thank you to all the people who have shared stories and or the people who have shared stories or are waiting in the queue. Thanks for your patience, whether you're waiting to be in a show or just waiting to hear the next episode. Can't do the mid-roll thank yous without a big thank you to Fred Thomas of The Frame and Wheel. Fred's been a great supporter of the show. Fred runs the Frame and Wheel, which provides eBay selling services to cyclists, bike shops, bike companies, bike racing teams, and cycling-related nonprofit organizations throughout New England. If you have bicycles, frames, parts, tools, accessories that you aren't using, Fred can give you more time, space, and cash by taking care of all the listing and selling for you. I tried it myself. I sent Fred a box of stuff I wasn't using, and he sent me a check back a little while later. It was easy and painless. He's got several options, and you can check him out on his website. You could have him sell it and send you a check like I did. You could apply the money towards a charity. You could also apply the money towards new equipment with some of his partner companies. There's another option where he might even make an offer for your stuff himself. I've been selling stuff for years. Swap Meets, Craigslist, Facebook, and I know all the pros and cons of trying to do it yourself. Fred's a great option for getting rid of some of that stuff that you never just seem to get to getting rid of yourself. If you're not looking to sell and you're looking to buy, you know what they say, that old saying, one person's takeoff is another person's upgrade. You can check out his eBay store or his Facebook group. And if you like Aegis bikes, you can buy that whole company. So check him out at the Frame and Wheel. And if you want to see more of Fred, he actually has his own talk show called All Things Bike with Fred Thomas. You can check it out on YouTube or on television up in Maine, but definitely check out The Frame and Wheel. Now back to the show. Getting a bike stolen that you love is one thing, but getting a bike stolen that you need for your life, that's another. I talked to Tom from Tomcat Bikes up in Portland, Oregon about bicycle theft and its impact. There was a thing on Bike Portland, I think, about a month, maybe two months ago, of a relatively new apartment building that went up, and some people got in there with bolt cutters and angle grinders and went right to the bike lock up and stole like four or five bikes. You know, somehow they gained access to the building. Either they like followed in a car that was going through the garage or jimmy the lock or put a piece of cardboard in so it didn't lock properly, and there's not much, you know, you can do about that. But if that's all that happened, if that's the only thing that can, you know, if all the other ways of getting access to a bike and getting it stolen, if those are eliminated, like on-street parking with a substandard rack or your landlord not allowing you to, to bring your bike inside or your workplace provides no reasonable bike security, if those were removed there would be far less bike theft and then it would be a a huge crisis that, oh my God, someone's like in our building taking bikes. 
Like that's where I would like it to see us be. So we're not. It's not just one of fifty different bike thefts happening in, in the city in a day. You know, it's like one of five. Hopefully, that might be able to be put in the radar of people. Because right now, it's like, oh my God, there's so many bike thefts. You know, the city of Portland has what three thirty five hundred reported each year. They have anywhere from five hundred to a thousand bikes in a warehouse that are just sitting there because they don't have a way of contacting their owners. And that's like an annual thing. Millions of dollars of bikes are stolen every year that the city of Portland knows about, and we all know that's probably 20% of what is actually stolen and reported. Hi, uh, my name is Tom. Uh, I operate Tomcat Bikes. It's a small bike shop in Portland, Oregon, and I do sales and service of used bikes and reconditioned bikes and new bikes. It seems like bike theft has definitely been increasing in Portland, and pilferage of bikes. So I define pilferage as stuff missing off your bike, like a back wheel or a front wheel or your fork. And those are specific things that have happened in January and February with at least four of my customers. Go back to their lockup, or their shed, or their porch, or their living room, and their bike is missing, or the back wheel is missing, or the fork is missing, and they're wondering what the heck happened, and they're angry and they're and they're mourning their their loss of their bike, and they come to me, and I do a write up for a replacement wheel, and it comes out to 180 to 350 bucks for a back wheel, and at that point they're buying a new bike, and it saddens me that. That's how I get to sell a bike to someone, not because they wore it out and it's time to see it go, but because someone else took it from them. And it's a really sad experience and for everybody around. And I feel like it's I'm in an adversarial position and not in a helpful position that way. Like Nothing good comes out of it. And that's not how I want to run my, uh, my business. I want people to be happy and I want more people on bikes and I want it to be for altruistic and good experiences and good reasons and not, you know, replacing a bike that... Uh, that was taken from them. Yeah, I mean, there's so many good feelings that we associate with the bike, but getting a bike stolen is definitely a major negative experience because you become so personally attached to it. It far exceeds its value, especially if you are on a bike that you love. I'm still haunted by the bikes of mine that have been stolen. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I still wonder where they are. I still wonder if they think of me, uh, <laughs> you know, and if they've been recoded or repainted or if they're just lying in a river somewhere waiting for me to rescue them. I. I don't know. Yeah. When I lived in the Bay Area and in New York, I heard all these bike theft rings where, you know, somebody needs a specialized Venge or something like that, and then some dude will go out and find a specialized Venge and make it happen. For higher-end bikes, that's probably true. For boutique brands... But for, you know, your 35-year-old Schwinn that you got from dad or a, a mixy bike from the 80s, it's opportunistic and individual theft. There's a, such preponderance of the person who owns the bike has to lock it better, right? That's, that's all that's available to us. 
And that can only be part of the solution or a range of solutions. I think we really have to work on socializing bicycle security in general. Like, you know, there's lots of renters, there's lots of landlords that don't allow bikes inside the living room or the, or the roommate doesn't want a bike in, in the kitchen or I tell every customer of mine that treat your bikes like your pets. You bring them in at night. Maybe they're at the end of your bed, but they're inside. Right? There's way less of a chance of it being stolen if it's in your personal space where you're working and living and, and breathing. Have you ever had a bike stolen before? Uh, me personally, yes, when I was a kid. I was at a BMX dirt jump spot in some you know, abandoned woods somewhere, and I had my bike at one end of the ramp, and I walked over to the other one to hang out with some friends, and um, I come back to our, our pile of bikes, and... Everyone's bikes are there except mine. And I'm like, hey, what happened to my bike? And, you know, everyone was like, oh, we don't know, we don't know. And, you know, lo and behold, a couple days later, I see some other kid from my junior high school riding my bike. And he was a local bully, and he just wanted my bike, and he took it. And there's nothing I could do about it. <laughs> um, Did you take it back? No. Um, I confronted him, and um, he basically got pushed around, and that was the end of that. Because um, I was not going to get my, you know, my chief fashion to the sidewalk. Um, but you know, I guess the poetic justice is that kid is well. He's definitely still living in my hometown. You know, this is what thirty-five years later, and DUI. You know, just person that um, hasn't had has had a really rough life, quote unquote. <laughs> but you know. Maybe perhaps it was his behaviors when he was a younger kid, you know, with other people that kind of brought up how, brought about that life. Wow, what kind of bike was it? It was a like a Huffy BMX bike, and I had a whole bunch of really nice high-end BMX parts from back then. So like, you know, Peregrine rims and MKS graphite pedals and CW racing bars and ODI BMX grips, um, some Cash and Aero saddle, probably Tioga Comp 3 tires in a certain color. So, and you never yeah. got your parents involved. You never got the police involved. You just you, nope. He was that big a bad kid. Yeah, and wow. other people had their bikes stolen too, and they had to go through the same thing. I don't remember his name. <laughs> if I did, I <laughs> you know. Wow, wow. But, I'm you know, sorry, like, but yeah, that just shows like how emotional it is to get your bike taken. You know, and there's enough bikes for everybody. I mean, yeah. if you've ever worked at a bike co-op, you know that anybody in the world who wants a bike, you can you can get one legitimately right. probably for free or very little cost. You know, it might not be the, the ideal bike that you want, but you can get an entry-level bike anywhere in the United States just about if you mm -hmm. just ask the right people. Yeah. They're well, not stealing not... it because they want a bike. They're stealing it right. because... He wants something else. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the thrill. Cause what happens when you're like a 15-year-old kid? That's what's going through your mind, right? And in the future, you know, when you're older, it's because you need money, right? Or you need a way to get around. I've also, you know, I think my personal experience with having a bike taken from me when I was a kid has been like, it's really stuck with me. And I have a really strong sense of justice and restorative justice when bikes are stolen. Like I feel it is my duty or it's my duty in life to like reunite people with their bikes. And 
I've probably done five or six bike recoveries in Portland alone, and I've lived in New York and Oakland, California, and Washington, D.C., and every place I have recovered bikes and returned them to people. And sometimes I find them, like, on the side of the road, and they don't even know what's gone, and everyone's happy. Other times I see I'm approached by someone, you know, one time I moved here in, in Portland. It's like three, four months after I moved here. Some scrap guy, he has a truck full of scrap metal, and he sees me tinkering on a bike in front of my garage. And is like, hey, would you be interested in this bike? And I'm like, or these bicycles? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I walk over to his, to his truck, and I see, like, three or four bikes. Two of them are Huffies. I could care less about them. One of them is uh, some aluminum bike that looks pretty cool. And then another one is a Santa Cruz Blur ST Carbon or LT Carbon. There's no aluminum on this bike or steel. It's full carbon. And I'm like, huh, that old white bike was kind of beat up. Um, you know, it's a, probably a $10,000 bike for all I know, right? So I look at it. I'm like, I'll take all the bikes. I got... 25 bucks in my pocket, take it all, I'll remove the bikes. Um, where'd you get it? I asked him where he got it, and he said, well, someone told me to clean out the garage, and I got some money for cleaning out the garage, and this is what's left over. I was like, okay, plausible story, kind of sketchy <laughs> situation. So I run the serial number, I post it on Craigslist, I think bike index is a thing at that point, and I looked there, I made all these inquiries, and then four or five days later, Someone contacts me and says, hey, I think that's my bike. I'm like, great. <laughs> I have it. I need them at a, a bike shop here when, uh, before I bought it. Uh, it was called WTF Bikes. And the owner was kind enough to um, let me uh, meet someone here and have the, you know, this guy comes down a couple days later. He tells me a story that the bike was stolen a year earlier when he was living somewhere in North Portland. And he was a pro racer sponsored by Santa Cruz. And this bike was moved out of his garage at some point. And now I have it. And I'm like, I don't have it. I'm just returning it to you. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> and he was really happy, but it was like a tool for him because he was a sponsored racer. It was one more bike that he got. Um, but he's still really happy to receive it. Um, my former wife, her bike was stolen outside of her yoga studio in front of a church like two days before Christmas. And they cut through the frame with a hacksaw or something. And that happened in like 2014 or something. We got that bike back. It was completely stripped. Some persons, they paid 50 bucks for this bike for a frame that was duct taped back together again. And, uh, you know, we got it back a few days after Christmas. And that was probably the most emotional recovery I've ever done because this is a bike I built up from the ground. You know, it was an old Peugeot Nixie and or Catan Nixie and had it repainted and put a whole bunch of yellow orange bike parts on it and custom built wheels and porter rack and, you know, ran into rear rack and super fancy you know, hammered aluminum fenders and it was like the most beautiful bike I ever built. Getting it back was such a relief because it was a bike I built for her birthday and you know we were just after we got married so it was just like huge emotional impact for that loss and that reunification. So even though it was damaged and you couldn't really do anything with the bike again because mm -hmm. it had been cut through the frame it was mm -hmm. still it allowed you to have closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I had another bike. We rebuilt it, and it was definitely better. 
but still, there's a lot of effort on my part and a lot of torment and heartache on, on her part. I wonder what some people would, once time goes by, I wonder, like, I had a Le Mans road bike, a Le Mans Reno stolen mm-hmm. out of my garage, and it was stolen with a giant Yukon with disc, 26-inch mm-hmm. wheels, but, you know, it was still, I actually bought it because I wanted to try a 26 versus a 29 and mm-hmm. just see if there was a lot of those differences that I was looking at. And mm-hmm. they were both stolen in the same night, and it's been so many years, but I wonder if I'd rather have the bikes back or mm-hmm. just know what happened to them. Somebody could say, the bikes will show up right at your door right now, snap my fingers, they'll be there. Or mm-hmm. you can have the detailed chronology of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. I-, I would be on the fence about that. I would actually, as much as I'd like to have those bikes back, I think I might choose to actually know what happened to them, know who <laughs> took them, why they yeah. took them, where they went, what happened to them, you know, just to know all that part of it, there is a, an open-endedness. And I guess that's like a personality test there in a way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, the closure, the closure is important, even if you, even if you can't get the, the bike back to the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. All bikes have stories and their stories are just as um, interesting as the people that ride them. Yeah. I think I'd have a struggle with that too, but I definitely would want the bike back because I'm kind of a bike hoarder. <laughs> You're a practical person. Yeah. I could also sell it because I'm a bike shop guy, right? I'm always going to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have a reuniting story where you had to confront somebody? Yeah. Riding in Oakland, some guy that obviously did not sit on the bike that he was riding or the bike that was um, he was ghost riding as well. And I was driving my car, and I'm like, that doesn't look right. So I basically cut him off and caused him to like spill the contents of the of the giant hefty bag full of cans that he was balancing on the other bike and he came at me with a knife because i was just yelling at him outside of the car and luckily i stayed in my car i think i probably would have been stabbed but he wasn't angry that, the, that i was confronting him about the bike he was angry that that i cut him off and he now lost all his cans um which were sprinkled throughout the road so I grabbed a nice bike, which was a nice fixed gear bike, and threw it in the back of my, my Subaru and took it home and found the uh, the owner who happened to be a friend of a friend of a friend. And he was like, yeah, I got stolen four hours earlier in downtown Oakland. And, you know, 10 o'clock at night, I'm now talking to the guy. And he's like, this is the most amazing thing because like, he didn't even report it to anybody. And I was able to recover it for him. So Wow, you were taking a chance there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you, you've got you've got an eye for the bikes and the sizing and stuff like that, but you know, mm-hmm. the the guy could have gotten hurt, you know, he could it could have been all kinds of bad stuff could have happened. So yeah, it was, I could have it's been a good end it's a good ending, you know. It'd be yeah. like who owns this bike? Oh my god, it's the guy with the bottles. <laughs> <laughs> right. He has a Unlikely unlikely, but you know, whoa, damn, anything's right. possible, but but wow. Um, so like some of my customers that are not currently housed, some of them have nice bikes. Some of them have more than one bike. So, you know, I clearly want to, I don't want to say that homeless people are stealing bikes. And and if if you have more than one bike, then you're a bike thief if you don't have a house. Because like, that's really not what's going on. So by no means do I think anybody should try that particular strategy. There are so many things that could go wrong in a situation like that. I'm really glad Tom shared that story with me. 
I don't think he was planning on it, but it illustrates just how frustrating it is for people to deal with bicycle theft, especially for people like Tom who care about all the people in their community. He works with all kinds of people up in Portland. Some have houses, some don't. Some use their bikes for exercise, others use it to survive economically. So for a device that can provide so much freedom, it can also bring out a feeling of protection for those people who come into his shop. We agreed that no lock was theft-proof, but I did ask him about locks. Here's what he had to say. I'm not satisfied with, with a lot of locks in the market, and you know, right now it seems what I need to carry in the shop is a Kryptonite Evolution Series lock, which is like 70 to 100 bucks, and that's minimum security in Portland. The locks you get at Fred Meyer or Safeway are, you can twist them with a, with a three-foot-long pipe, and they're just not hardened steel, and it makes a huge difference. Like, it is worth spending 50 bucks more on a better quality lock. It'll probably be the best 50 bucks you'll ever spend in your life, <laughs> or your bike's life. If people want to find out more uh, about your place and some of the stuff that you do, where would they go? TomcatBikes.com is my website. I'm pretty active on Instagram, which is TomcatBikesPDX. My Facebook page is probably just as active with that stuff. Yeah, come into the shop, corner of Southeast Milwaukee at Powell in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Portland, and I'm across from Pock Pock. That's where I'm at. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot for sharing your stories. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. We've randomly called people in the Providence area and eventually hit this guy who has a message for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Eric from the New England Builders Ball, your friendly neighborhood hand-built bike show. Returning to Boston for show number nine. The Builders Ball runs from 2 to 10 p.m. on Saturday, May 9th, and it is the bike party of the year. It is a consumer show full of exhibitors showing off their bicycles that they are building, but it's also a wonderful cross-section of bicycle-loving America. You walk in there and there's people who are long distance tourists on their bikes and there's people who are bike commuters and there's the courier crowd and there's athletes in there. It's everybody who loves bicycles and they're all having a really awesome time at a show with great beer and great food and great music and a whole lot of great people. And uh, if you haven't made it before, come on out to show number nine, 2 to 10 p.m. on Saturday, May 9th at Boston's Innovation and Design Building. Find us at our website, NewEnglandBuildersBall.com, or find us on Instagram. It's at BuildersBall. And before you head out, make sure you do your ABC quick check. What's that, you say? A for air. Give those tires a squeeze. Make sure that uh, you're not running too low a pressure, or too high a pressure for that matter, I guess. B is for brakes. Check and uh, make sure that your pads are properly aligned, not too worn down. Give your levers a squeeze. Make sure they don't extend all the way down to your bars when you pull them. C is for chain and cassette, well, your whole drivetrain, really. Make sure everything is aligned properly and it's got some lube on it and everything runs smoothly. The quick stands for your quick releases, so make sure that your wheels aren't going to fall off while you're riding. Some bikes have other quick releases, like a, if you've got a folding bike, you probably have half a dozen different quick releases here and there on the frame. Make sure everything is secure and tight. And the last part of ABC Quick Check is just check. That means give everything a good once over and then you're off and ready to roll. 
Have a good ride and see you at the Builder's Ball, May 9th, Boston. Eric's really done a great job trying to build this grassroots event. The Builder's Ball is a really cool bicycle party, and if you're anywhere near, you should go check it out. I've met Richard Sachs, JP Weigel, who are legends in the bicycle game. I've seen a Mars bike built by the Rhode Island School of Design, and one year I even saw the uh, winner of the Rat Rod Build-Off competition there. So there's a lot of different bikes you can come see. You'll be surprised people from all over come there, and it's just a great time to hang out and talk bikes and be surrounded by beautiful bikes. Eric wants to thank all the people who are going to come and his sponsors, especially Velo Orange and Narragansett Brewing. Hope to see you all there and you can grab some Bike Karma stickers while you're there as well. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. As always, I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can check out Mobjack or some of Keller's more recent projects. You won't be disappointed. A big thank you to our guest, Amber, the Magpie, Gaspar, and Tom from Portland. And I'd like to thank you and all the people all over the world in all 50 states and way over 50 countries who've managed to find this podcast and listen and share stories. Thanks so much. If you want to join the Bike Karma sticker army or you have some questions or comments or perhaps a story idea, or maybe even have a product that you might want to advertise on the show. For all those things, you can DM me on any of the social media or you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. If you're thinking of sharing a story with us, don't worry, it's not live. Every episode is lovingly edited, I hope you can tell. And even though there was a slight hiatus in this episode, there's usually about one a month. Check out the back catalog, but remember, I got a lot better at producing since that first episode. Even though I think my voice is starting to sound older. I think it's just winter. If you're anywhere on the East Coast, remember the Weathersfield Bicycle Festival and Swap Meet is going to be on June 14th. That's a Sunday this year, so save the date. More about that later. And if you're friends with Oprah or Greg LeMond, you know, my two remaining dream guests, tell them I'm sorry, but I won't be able to talk with them until next week. I'm playing hard to get. Let's see if it works. No, really, for you two, 24-7, just give me a call. like to give a tip of the hat to the artists who make all the royalty-free music that we use in the segments. The rest of the show is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. Copyright, trademark, and all those other such things are asserted and reserved. We have a lot coming up over the next few months, including a one-year anniversary of Ragbri and all those stories that I collected last year, more stories from France, more stories from around the world. Well, till next time, keep it wheel. Mm-hmm.